0: the garage i'm cory cope i'm freddie Wolf. yeah we're continuing with noir vember noir vember you're dipping into the neo-noirs now you're already looking at it. we have 1986's mona lisa when did neo-noirs really kick in that's something i would I, I haven't really thought about
1: it depends i mean kind of late 70s you know um right. like early 80s like thief is considered you know thief is a Oh yeah, uh, yeah. A, a, a example of Neo Noir. But the driver, um, Walter Hill, nineteen seventy seven, it, it, it's Neo Noir. So yeah. mid to late seventies, I would say, is Neo Noir. The Neo Noir yeah. movement started, you know, and then it just you know, it went hard into the eighties. Right. And yeah, you nineties. Know, but um, you know, mid seventies, six seventy six, seventy seven. There there's some examples. I mean, the driver is the obvious one that jumped out at me. Right it was black and white it would, there would be no neo about it. <laughs> <laughs> right. could just put it in a time capsule with, you know, some of these other movies we've been talking about or we're going to talk about.
0: This one was the one where I really cuz here's the thing, we don't we covered the driver already on the show and I didn't see the driver until I was already in my 20s. So but Mona Lisa came out the year that I turned 17 and I don't think I saw it until it hit home video. That's probably I was probably between 17 and 18 when I saw this. So, it was the first time I had seen a movie that, well, I, of course, I wasn't really into big into British movies. There wasn't a whole lot of imports that were coming in at the time, other than maybe absolute beginners, but because that was all, but the draw for me was Bowie. It wasn't that it was UK, a uh, British movie, it was <laughs> that it was Bowie. So, this is one I was, I was really paying attention to. At that time, I, th- I don't think I knew who Bob Hoskins was
1: yet. Oh, even though, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Come on, you've yeah. Seen Bob Hoskins. He was in a ton of shit before this. Like up, a, I, I, I
0: wasn't did. aware of them. <laughs>
1: yeah, Cotton Club. You know, you come on. There's, there's well, we
0: talk about Cotton Club. I I I wasn't that well versed with Cotton Club before this.
1: Oh yeah, well yeah. Long but, Friday. I, yeah. Well, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, you, I you weren't he, familiar with the Yes. It. Yes. I'll stop trying to refresh your memory.
0: <laughs> I don't. Well, see, I can. But my thing was, I can say I've seen those other movies, but I didn't see them prior to seeing this. But with this one, he's in the top of his game in this because I have since seen those other movies and I reminded, you know, five minutes into this what an incredible performer he is. I knew you were watching it last night because he texted me and said, Man, I miss Bob Hoskins. And it's just, when you start watching him perform, whether he's in something like this or something a little more, well, more, the most mainstream thing he ever did was who framed Roger Rabbit, but he's fucking solid no matter what he does. And so it's so effortless with him too, the way he just, the way he performs. I think what I, what I love most about Mona Lisa is that it's such a simple story. And I love how you don't need a fuck ton of exposition, Right.
1: Nope, we don't. We don't. We don't. We never know what prison he got out of. We don't really know why he went to prison.
0: And we know how long he's been there, just from a simple conversation about how long has it been since since I've seen you—seven months, it or seven years. Seven years.
1: years. It's like it's
0: so perfect. Like that's how you get the the message across to the audience without being like, "All right, here's the baseball bat. I'm gonna hit you over the head with," and here's the exposition. And another thing too that makes this movie work so well is. It is a slim cast. Yeah, you don't get a lot of characters, unlike the comparative that we were making with the previous movie, with Night in the City, where we we're talking about Guy Ritchie and, and him kind of biting off the characters. He doesn't take anything from Mona Lisa because he's got like a hundred people in every one of his movies. This is really well cast and performed. Yeah, and by this is this is the one that kind of feels the most like a play, and that. You have a lot of people doing all the heavy lifting. There's no a lot. There's not a lot of support players in the movie.
1: You see the same character. What, what's cool is these. You know, you sort of you you you're introduced to these people early on. The uh, the um, the little circle of you know thugs and low lifes that uh, you know George runs with. Um, you know, I mean, I, I like the beginning how I, I, I love the I, I kind of like the weird sort of fractured gangster fairy tale vibe this thing has on like, you know, the movie starts with Hoskins carrying a white rabbit, not unlike young Alice in the uh, Lewis Carroll uh, through the looking glass, you know, and it, and it ends with that. So I, it, what's crazy is there are only maybe what there's maybe half a I mean, there's maybe a dozen characters in this movie. And, you know, you see a couple of them you see twice. Like the pimp that, you know, it's funny because in an American version of this, that pimp that he beat up in, in the car would have come back somewhere. Oh, yeah. Oh, when they're on the street? Yeah. And he just, yeah, yeah. And yeah, he just <laughs> fucking pounds him. What, what, what makes this movie work, and again, and it's, 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 it's noir, it's not unlike the Harry Fabian, it's the desperate people. What, what is different about this movie is George, I mean, I don't want to use the word He's not a simpleton, but he he is a straightforward guy. You see who George is. And George gets in over his head because, you know, what I was reminded of when I watched this movie is everybody is who they seem to be. And I would have said, except Simone. Right. You know, the whole time I was like... I Thinking, man, is she just fucking planning? They're fantastic together. I mean, yeah. it, it, it all seems real. It's just the way it's played between the two of them. They're really great together. She's great, and even at the end, you're not really mad because you kind of you know it all makes sense. Like he got it twisted. It's a it's a really weird movie. It's 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 hard to um, you know sort of uh, who's right and who's wrong. And that's the, the other thing about noir is that noir is. Classic noir is shot in black and white. It's not, but it's not black and white. The stories, you know, it's never right. like with some noir. Yes, you know exactly who's the bad guy, who's the good. But, but for me, the best noir is where the lines are shaded. Is is Simone a bad person? No, she's not at all. You know, she's in a bad situation, and there's one way out. Is George a bad person? No, no. But you know, he, again, the only way for him to take care of himself and his, you know, his estranged family is to go back to work for you Neil know, Mortwell, who's, you know, Michael Caine. Dude, Michael Caine is such a fucking awful person in this movie, man. Right. He is the bad guy. There, there is nothing good about There's nothing nice about Michael Caine. No. Or Anderson, dude, who I really had forgotten that Clark Peters was in this movie. I was like, oh, fuck, is that Clark Peters? Yeah. But seeing him that young, I mean, by the time I was really familiar with him, it, you know, from The Wire... So to see him, you know, young and fucking swinging at people, there's some great shots in this movie. Like when he's swinging at the razor with the razor and they're in the, and they're riding down the elevator and he's running down this.
0: The elevator scene is fucking brilliant. dude. It's, it's so crazy. When they ride the elevator all the way down to, and by the way, speaking of Michael Kane, right? Total dress to kill moment, right? It just, even though it's like, even though you can see through the elevator, it's just, oh, yeah. it just remind me of dress to kill because obviously for not just because of the weapon, but, but when they take the elevator all the way down and when they're riding it back up and now we're in an opposite, the cameras in opposite elevators are watching them come up. I mean, to sync up those two elevators the way they did, that would have been so hard to do. Oh yeah. And it's just a cut. We're cutting from us being inside the same same lift car that they're in to us being in another one across a hallway that we don't even we don't even realize that we're in a different car until right. like who's that down the hall? I'm like, oh, it's them. It's like it's such a clever sequence, and I don't recall ever seeing anything like that in another oh, movie. Oh,
1: locations in this movie are fantastic. Funny, it's none of it exists anymore, right? Like you know, that whole peep show area is. I, I think it's uh it's like the British Google. <laughs> There's a really nice essay that comes in that uh, box. set. I, I think it's, I, I don't, I don't have that. You have the criterion version, right? Yeah. Yeah. I have, uh, you know, just some random Blu-ray, but I, I, I came across, I was looking at the materials and I came across cause you can find it. I, I read that essay and it really gives you a lot of uh, backstory on the King's Cross and this whole, you know, down in central London where the railway hub and all that stuff is at. It's an area that no longer exists that, uh, you know, much like most places 40 years later, well, <laughs> right. The gentrification of, yeah. And yeah, Google UK. That's, that's where, that's what sits there today. Right. <laughs> and if you watch
0: rock and roll, I mean, that's like, that's a big yeah. part of just the old buildings being torn down real estate, And that's basically, I mean, that's the plot of the movie it's all about the guys trying to get into that game of real estate and right. And when London is ever changing. So hell even back in 2008 when that came out all this shit was gone
1: yeah i mean it's been gone for quite a long time but it's yeah. you know it's uh and it's hard to fathom it, it's it's very much like new york like times square right like you see times square in these 80s movies and you're like holy shit man right. in that fucking place i would you looks like you could get fucking you could get vd just watching this movie <laughs> you know right through the screen but you know today you know it's it's homogenous and whitewashed everything's been pressure and power washed and scrubbed clean and Maybe some for the better, but, you know, I don't know, man. It's, uh, this is a very immersive world that doesn't exist anymore when you watch this movie. Right. But, you know, what makes the wheels turn on this movie, honestly, is their relationship. And as we're introduced to these other characters, the girls that he meets along the way, um, there's
0: some weird weird moments, man. And I got to say, though, the casting intention of having these two other women, these two hookers, look just like his daughter was just... Yeah, yeah. I remember the first time I saw the movie, and I'm like, "Wait, who's that? Why is his daughter out hooking? And why is he? Why is he not recognizing his daughter's out hooking?" And I'm like, and then "It took me because they looked that much alike. I mean, yeah, they could be blood relatives. They're so well, they look so similar,
1: right? Even he says it. He's like, "Oh my God, you could be my daughter. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. out? You know that whole thing. He's like, literally, like not only could you're the right age, but Jesus Christ, you look just like my daughter." Right. And
0: I think, you know, what's funny is uh, uh, Kate Hardy and Sammy Davis that play the, the the two hookers that we're talking about, and of course, Simone herself, they're the only actresses in the movie as far as the prostitutes go. The rest are all real prostitutes.
1: Yeah, totally. It, you know, it's crazy, too, that Kathy uh, is only 20 years old when they film this movie. Right. It's funny because I haven't seen her in a whole lot. I was like, whatever happened to her? And I looked and I'm like, oh yeah, well, there was that. Because I recognized her immediately from Wes Craven's Serpent in the Rainbow. Right. She's great in this movie. Right. You can't take your eyes off her. She's magnetic. She's beautiful. You know, for a 20-year-old to be able to, you know, sort of emote that kind of stuff and to, yeah. to do some of these things that they have her do on camera. It's crazy, man. Right. I mean, I can't imagine this kind of performance from a 20-year-old now. No. Just there's some wisdom beyond her years, you know, coming that's coming across in her performance.
0: Man. There was a window of time where these classically trained British performers, not just you know not just female, but you know male leads were this way too. Male performers they could just leave it on the stage, so to speak, at such a young age. But like you said, even now though, or oh, hell even 20 years ago. Just the way people are getting into acting and the way they train now is just so different. It's it's a far more rare thing than it was then. There's a handful of young actors that I really like that I would put up there. Like I mean, I think Florence Pugh might be the closest person in that age bracket that performed that way, but how rare is that? She is wonderful in this. I remember her also from the craze, which we've talked about right, here and there. Right, 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 right. Where eventually we're gonna
1: have to Yeah, cover, eventually we're gonna have to like cover the craze because we, we but, do bring it up quite a bit and we're yeah. fans of that director.
0: And I've seen her here and there pop up on, you know, some of those BBC yeah. back mm-hmm. back when I had back when I had direct TV and I had BBC TV, I would BBC USA, I think it was called, and I'd see her in different things yeah she's wonderfulness, and the I think the thing that about her that just stands out is that she has this i don't know this aloofness that uh, of that she knows what's going on with her, but she kind of doesn't you know but she thinks that's all she is that what she does for a living is all she is right, and which is I mean that's the character Kathy, but she really does a wonderful job of channeling that. Like you said, at 20 years old to even know what it's like to, yeah, it's pretty impressive.
1: Well, what's wild about this movie too is it, it has a very like fairy tale quality to it. Right. Neil Jordan was a writer, novelist before he started making films, but it, you know, it, it kind of has that sort of weird, sort of fairy tale vibe to it, which we see on full view in I think his first film was Company of Wolves, right? Right. So there's a bit of that like fairy tale type imagery in this movie, like I mentioned earlier with the white rabbit and Hoskins coming over water the bridge. We don't know where from he's, but he's coming back into this kingdom of felt or, (laughs) or, you know, he's come back into the tragic kingdom, whatever you want to call it. I mean, it is lit that way and certain shots are that way. And what I like about it is we get to travel with Hoskins, who he's familiar with this world to a certain extent, but not to the extent that he has to go into this world. (laughs) Once he takes on, the job of driving Simone and, you know, and then sort of becoming Simone's confidant. My favorite sequence in the whole movie, dude, is when they do the whole pretty woman thing in reverse. (laughs) Right. When he shows up, dude, (laughs) when she's, he's like, I got money left over. And she's like, not here, not here. (laughs) Yeah. Right. I mean, God, it's such a clever moment that like, literally it is the pretty woman moment in reverse. It is. It almost looks like the same freaking hotel lobby. No, right? Absolutely, it does. I mean, instead of the Gary Marshall character, we get that fucking stodgy uh, Brit uh, guy who she maces at. The, you know, the right. last time we're in there. <laughs> but I mean, the movie itself—it's real moody, man, and I love the right. way it's shot. Yeah, Roger Pratt's photography in this movie is. Bathed in blues and neons, and there's we're in uh, you know London, where, where we've got fog and water, and we're getting all that reflection. I mean, you know that that's one of the that's kind of a trademark of neo noir, right? right? And this movie has all of that, man. I mean, and right. and, and dude, some of the quirky things. I mean, it's very much like a novel. Right. We're getting all those things that you don't usually get in these movies because, you know, like we've got Robbie Coltrane's character, Thomas, who, you know, lives in an abandoned caravan in an empty warehouse down by the river. Right. But, you know, he makes Electric Ladylands out of lime green Virgin Mary's and, you know, the uh, ornamental spaghettis. <laughs> yeah. You know, which is weird. Like, you know, meals you can't eat for girls who can't keep their food down. <laughs> That, that's the kind of stuff. I, I feel like the the fact that we don't have a lot of characters is we get a lot of character development in the ones that we do have. Right? Because Coltrane's character is interesting, and he's used just enough. Right. They use all the characters the right, exactly the right amount. You don't need because this is this is the this movie is about George and Simone. Right. And they keep it that way. And that's the right. other thing about good noir, neo noir. It's it's not overcomplicated. Right. Because there's this a human heart at the story of it, you know, and and, and usually, like in this, right, <laughs> things don't work out. Things go south, and when they go south, they go real south, real fast. You know, there's there's some there's some seriously heartbreaking scenes in this, like where she, where he shows up the first time and she's tied down to the bed with the old no. man, and then and they have their moment where they get their fr- and she's just fucking slapping him in the face with that whip, and you're yeah. These these moments, you're just like holy shit, you know. And you can see it in George's face. He feels for her. Like it's just you know. And when she says you fancy me, you know know, that that whole thing that her speech there near the end, it's just fucking heartbreaking, man. And uh, it has to do with we've seen them, you know, without any physical. You know, there's never the moment of, you know, they never give in, right? There's a restraint there to keep you know, I'm telling you the story. They're close. This is what you get, you know, but they're, they they do not have to resort to like, Hey man, do we need to see Bob Hoskins making out with this hot 20 year old? No, we don't need to see that to know that. I mean, it's just way more effective the way that he this. And, and a, a part of that I'm sure is, uh, Hoskins is one of those actors, man, who always brings like this sort of, and just sadness and empathy. I mean, he could turn it on a dime. Obviously, if you've seen Danny the Dog or uh, you know The Long Good Friday, he can just play it the other way too. But there's something about him. We see you see it in Roger Rabbit. You see it in um, there's a movie I'm sure you've seen it called Heart Condition with Yeah, uh, I love Heart Condition. Denzel Washington and Chloe yes. Webb, right? Yeah, it's just you know Hoskins was one of those actors who uh, he could do more with his eyes. And, uh, that sort of sometimes mischievous grin, sometimes sad, you know, I mean, he, he just, he was one of those actors who you're not just, it's not just him saying the words you're, you're, you're seeing it all. I mean, he's, he's wearing it and, and, and that's what he does in this movie is he he wears his emotions kind of on his sleeve. <clears throat> I mean, everybody, I mean, his buddy, he's like, you fancy her. I mean, everybody knows, man, it's just, but he refuses to act on it until the end where it just, you know, where everything kind of just, you know, unravels right. and it unravels in a really weird, you know, it, it's not even, it's not even about them at the, by the end of it, it's just, it, it's just all sort of, it's a revenge, you know, it, it all sort of just, you know, blows up. And, and I was like, holy shit, they would right. never make a movie and like, like this, now. No, it's too messy. There's like, you know, and when I say messy, it's just like, it's not neatly packaged up, right? The two girls, you know, they're sitting in a, restaurant behind glass and you know he gets in and that's the last time he sees her and him and thomas drive away the next thing you see is the. i swear to god dude i hadn't seen the movie in so long when they're under the car working i i was this those legs show up i was like oh they're gonna off him i couldn't remember if if someone killed no, him no i'm
0: just no it's right? the same way when he's like he's kind of wrapping up the story and
1: i'm like yeah. going I don't remember this at all. No, man. I, I yeah. was like, is he right? And then I was like, is he already dead? And we're just sort of seeing one of those flashbacks of and we're hearing a voiceover from heaven. And I'm like, yeah, it's the really <laughs> yeah, We're at Sunset Boulevard moment, right? That's yeah, like- right. I mean, it, it, but it, it, so it's a really, I mean, I, I feel like this is definitely Neil Jordan's best movie. Oh, I wouldn't argue that either. Yeah, I would agree. You know, yeah. And and again, we get, you know, we get that Michael Caine performance. We get, you know, we get a We get, and dude, Caine is only in six scenes in this whole movie.
0: Hoskins and him were together on on Sweet Liberty, right? And the whole time they were on there, they talked about the movie. And Kane told Hoskins like, "Oh yeah, man, and I, it was too small of a part. I'm done kind of playing villains, so I kind of played it down. He like made him look the other way. And then Hoskins shows up on set, and there's Kane. <laughs> he just right. like he'd, he'd fuck with him the whole time, thinking I mean, he was going to make that movie. with him. He had no clue until he showed up.
1: Yeah, and it's funny they had worked together before. It was with Richard Gere. It's called Beyond the Limit you know it was directed by John Mackenzie it was his follow up to uh the long good friday i think but so they they had worked together a few times so they, i mean but you can tell they have this the the that sort of weird worn in relationship that you know the first time when we see george um, when he shows up at, he's like hey man what are you doing here <laughs> he's man. like that whole weird moment um, it's it's just so funny cuz he's like such like a clueless kid right like man
0: this is why you build around character and not right. (laughs) And it's because if you can't relate to it, who cares? Right. You're never going to engage an audience if people don't care. And this is something that this is the problem you have with a lot of movies that have come out last 25 years. And, And I mean, you just look at the superhero movies. I mean, that's a perfect example. The ones that work, focus on characters and the, the relationships the characters have only, and the only ones that work have that deeply embedded. And that's why like Iron Man three is so damn good because Shane Black writes from characters and he right. writes outward. Yep. That That's why exactly. movies like M- Mona Lisa and, you know, and, and I think almost everything that Neil Jordan has done.
1: Yes, very much so.
0: It is all based around characters and then the surroundings. He just, he just drops them in there after the fact. I want to tell this story about these characters, and right. let's just figure out where I'm going to put them.
1: And, and you know what else I love is I, is I love the clever way that you're you, that you're given the Mona Lisa, the Nat King Cole song. You're, you know, you, right. you hear it early on, but then it's worked into the score. And right. George is humming it. I mean, you know, it, it's funny because it, it, what I didn't realize, and I, you know, again, I was as I was looking, reading, uh, you know, pieces on the film after we watched it is that I think the majority of Neil Jordan's films are named after songs, <laughs> like The Crying Game and In Dreams. <laughs> I mean,
0: Mona Lisa. Songs. Okay, so there's a moment in there. We're both kind of on the same page about it. Right. Genesis as a trio with the Invisible Touch album was so huge. Yeah. And this song, great um, song, In Too Deep, is a great song, and the irony is is that Phil Collins was hired to write the song for the movie, but it's fully credited to the other guys in the band. Right, and it's on the Invisible Touch Up, but technically it was written for this movie.
1: Right, because Phil was gold at that point, dude. He'd written right. that White Knights song. He'd written Against All Odds. Right. Uh, you know, he was kind of like the uh, he was like the short English bald version of Kenny Loggins <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> in the eighties. <'80s. laughs> He won one Oscar. I mean, I think he was nominated for a few uh, for his you know, tracks. But it's the one moment, and I'm just going to say it, that kind of was distracting for me, like in the movie. And again, it's probably because I don't know that it always was. Like when I saw this movie in 1985, 86, in a theater, didn't think anything of it because it was a song that was out at the time. It would have been on as he's walking through. Yeah. But you know, now seeing it, it just seemed so like, Oh, here it's the Phil Collins moment. You know, here it is. <laughs> it's right. like, and it's a song I love, but it's just like, it, it oddly kind of took me out of the movie for a moment. You know, I, I found myself fucking humming in too deep uh, for the next 10 minutes. And I'm like, fuck, stop it. What? What, what is happening? I, I sang this. I sang the entire song. Right. The whole thing, the whole time I'm watching it.
0: and, but like you're he was. It wasn't just those tracks. I mean, his solo record that blew up for him the year before, right? Before Invisible Touch came out, and but Invisible Touch, I want to, th- I want to say, came out after this, right? Had yeah, it
1: came out like it came out in the same? I think because it came out in '86, It came out in the summer. But I think the summer. movie, yeah, I, I think, think the, the movie came out first.
0: Did, yeah, yeah, yeah. But he, Phil Collins had. I mean, the, okay, you're like you had noted it, it. It if there was something out of place in here, it's this music videoy moment. And yeah, totally. I don't mind it because it's such a great song. But if it was, if it was a song that sucked, then I'd be kind of like.
1: Well, right, exactly. I mean, the thing is, it, it, it and again, but it, it's a very '80s thing, right? It's it. it this this happens in a lot. Of, you know, we always talk about the '80s montage. Oh, here come here right. comes the montage, and you know, there's a song that was popular at the time, and you're like, oh, and you know, and now you associate. I I hadn't associated that song with this movie, but now I never will ever forget. Now, never, in never this movie. again. So, again, it, it's it didn't ruin the movie or anything, but it's the no. one moment I was like, oh, it's so funny watching it 30 seven years later you're like holy shit we had talked
0: about a while back when we were again this is this is five years in the making for us as far as doing the noir yeah noir member and against all odds since we were talking about it we were like on the verge of picking that just because at any given time and it was on the noir neo-noir list for this time around and the only reason I balked at it, even though it still would have been a good idea, is because Richard Widmark is in the movie, and I thought yeah. it would have been a cool little tie-in. Right. I have to say, with the neo-noir stuff, there is a the '80s version. At least for the '80s window of time, they all um, I don't want to say they're all the same, but it's hard. The, the, the struggle was was to be to choose to choose one.
1: Look, man, what happened is 1981, dude, is uh, MTV happened, is what happened to, you know, and so it became a staple in these movies. There was, you talk about Against All Odds, Taylor Hackford, right? Right. Officer and Gentleman, Mm -hmm. Up Where We Belong, Mm -hmm. Against All Odds, uh, Against All Odds, Phil Collins, Uh, his next movie, White Nights, right? It's Phil Collins and Marilyn, or Marilyn Martin, separate ways, or separate lives, separate lives. Separate, separate lives, yeah. Right? So, I mean, it, be, it was a thing that, you know, sort of became like, hey, man, you want a number one song? You gotta, you know, it, it just sort of became that thing. And it, it, that's kind of a byproduct of the 80s. I mean, it's kind of stopped as you go into the neo-noir of the 90s. It, it doesn't happen as much. So it's definitely most of these 80s neo-noirs do have a moment Or, you know, against all odds, it comes over the end credits. So, you know, the song doesn't play in the movie at all, which is very smart. It just literally starts at the end with, you know, when the credits are rolling over Rachel Ward. And it's perfect because it's, you know, it's the end of the movie and you're like, holy shit, You, you just feel gutted. What I've always
0: hated about the music video, I've never seen a music video spoil a movie. (laughs)
1: Yeah, no doubt, right? It certainly does. Like, I saw the fucking music video, and it's what made me want to see the movie on it, obviously, when I was 14. But I knew, you know, I was like, okay, well, fuck. You know, everything you need to know is in that music video. Right. One quick thing I want to talk about. uh, So, the movie it was co-produced, it just as The Long Good Friday was, by George Harrison's Handmade Films, which right. everybody, you know, knows what uh, Beatles fans we are and how much we love Harrison. The funny thing is, I was watching. Did you watch it all the way through the credits? Yes. So there's there's a like a production consultant credit for Richard Starkey, and I was like, Richard Starkey. <laughs> I'm like, oh fuck, that's Ringo Starr. Right. That's, that was his credit, special production consultant, you know, Richard Starkey. And the name just like jumped out at me and I couldn't figure out why. And I was like, and then it took me like, you know, about 10 minutes of thinking about it. And I'm like, oh, that's fucking, (laughs) that's Ringo Starr's name, his real name, Richard Starkey. So I don't know if that was, you know, I don't know how involved Ringo was with handmade films or whatever. I mean, I just thought it was kind of a funny, you know, when you talk about crazy credits like you used to get in the end of every Burt Reynolds movie um, or, you know, or a naked gun film. Right. (laughs) Well, there's your crazy credit for this movie, Richard Starkey. (laughs) The thing about
0: Harrison's, you know, on this, as far as handmade films being involved with stuff prior to us recording i was i was on wikipedia going through their their filmography and you know a lot of the stuff you recognize the the one thing that that caught my eye was like probably coltrane's in that, and he's, yeah. in that mm-hmm. and he's in that and he's in that and he's in that i mean he's in like every third movie that's on their roster it's pretty funny um nuns on the run was the their right. their lone 90s movie
1: yeah yeah it's funny because uh, I, I think he belonged to like a wasn't Robbie Coltrane from like not from Monty Python but he was from another comic um, like a like a you know Monty Python type group I can't remember what they were called. Like, oh, well, let me look it up. Hold on second here. Uh, uh, comic strip, comic strip, comic strip uh, yeah. is what they were called. But a, again, you know it's yes, dude Robbie Coltrane and Nuns on the Run and you know there's just a lot of tie in because you know they they did Life of Brian.
0: And in '94 Guy Ritchie's Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels.
1: Right. This is the same year that they made their one big misstep when they produced Shanghai Surprise with <laughs> right. Sean Penn and Madonna. Am I not? Am I wrong? <laughs> no. That I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> I feel it's. I feel like this was. Uh, I feel like it was produced and you know released in the same summer as uh, Mona Lisa. So they're you know they were they were one for two. You know they're they're hitting five hundred for the summer of '86. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Oh, Jim Goddard. what were you thinking, dude? Uh, BBC Television for you?
1: Yeah, no doubt, man. I mean, I think there's a George Harrison music video in the middle of that movie too. Probably. Yeah, I think (laughs) I think instead of uh, In Too Deep, we get uh, George Harrison playing ukulele, singing something. uh, You know,
0: I got my mind set on you. Was that around that time? After that, no, it was after that, wasn't that? Was that like eighty seven? Eighty seven.
1: Yeah, it was. It was that album came out. Cloud Nine came out after.
0: And then right after that was...
1: The yeah the, yeah, the Wilburys, yeah. The if you will. But yeah, I mean, the, this, this movie, I, I feel like it's a, a really good example of neo-noir. And it's funny because it's, uh, I would say it's our only truly Brit movie. Because I don't know that I would say Night in the City. Well, no. Night in the City was not... It felt more like an American studio film, especially because we watched the American cut. Which, yeah, and it was, it w- with the British ending. <laughs> that's the thing that's so funny about it. Like, right, like every character was British or, you know, other than Woodmark. But mm. I wouldn't consider that a piece of British filmmaking. No. As where this movie is definitely 100%. Yeah. Uh, you know, even though he's Irish, I think, right? Uh, yeah. Jordan, he's Irish. Yeah. but But this feels like there's no doubt in my mind this is, you know, if I, if you were to put me in a, in a room and turn it on, I'd be like, Oh yeah, this is, like, this is an English film. <laughs> right. All right. And it's fun. And I'm glad you picked it. Cause I don't, you know, I mean, I hadn't seen it in a long time mean, I owned it. I don't remember the last time I had seen it. So, you know, watching it last night and then sort of, you know, going back through some things today, just, you know, to refresh my memory. Um, I really did enjoy it. it. You know, minus the things we talked about. I, I, think that if I was to rate I'll let you know at the end <laughs> when we rate the four movies we've talked about but I would say right now this will probably be number four for me and it's not because I don't like it it's no. just I like the other movies a lot more <laughs> I know that unless something goes horribly wrong
0: and I meant to address this earlier when we were talking about uh, the music and not just be, prior to Phil full call we were talking about the score and how Nat King Cole's track works its way in there I want to talk about somebody who'd composed the score in the movie, and it's Michael Kamen. Yeah. I have never seen a movie of his that wasn't just this boisterous Joel Silver driving score. Right. His subtlety... The score is exceptional in this movie. It's it's so subtle. It's so perfect for the work. I think because I've seen everything I've ever seen his name blown up as single title credit for. It's always a big movie. Yep. And it, what he does is so. I don't want to say small. This is not. And when I say small, I don't mean it in a in a derogatory way. It, it's what he does is perfect for the story. It's never overbearing. It's never sappy when it could be at moments, especially at the end. I think just by seeing you could see every, you can see a hunt. Well, you can see 15 movies of his and 14 of them have a song. The score cues came from the same other, this is one of the other 13 movies you're looking at, but that 15th movie is this. And you're like, wait, he did that movie too. This is 86, man. Where are we at right now with Lethal Weapon? Right yep. around the corner. Right. So, shit. <laughs> His score in this is exceptional because you don't notice it.
1: Yeah, it's, it's one of those things. It doesn't get in its own way. And, right. uh, but it's so effective. I mean, it, literally, it, again, it's, it's, it's like the framing. It's like, it's, like the, it's like the staging of the characters, it, you know, when we, when we have George and Simone. It all hits the right notes. It's a super effective film on all of those levels. I mean, it's a well-crafted, it's a great example of neo-noir, the characters. I mean, it's, it's a great movie. It's just funny that, like, uh, it's one of those movies. I feel like a lot of people haven't seen this movie, too. I mean, I, I, know, that, yeah. you know, I know there's a few people that listen that are going to be like, well, I've, you know, you're wrong, because I've seen it. But I'm saying overall, because I, I've mentioned it to people several times You know, over the last 25, 30 years, whatever it is, who don't know it. You know, when I'm, cause you know, when you talk about Hoskins, I remember when Hoskins died, I was like, oh yeah, man, you got to check out Mona Lisa and long, goodbye and uh, long, good Friday. And right. if they knew one of the two, it was a shocker, <laughs> you know, everybody knows him from Roger Rabbit or heart condition or, um, you know, or the, um, what is, uh, what is the movie? What is the real title of the Jet Li movie? I call it Danny the dog. Cause that's what I saw it as it's is it un- un, uh, it's unleashed isn't it Unleashed correct correct right. Right. right I mean that's what most people you know who I have known over the last 20 years wouldn't would know Hoskins from or those movies you know he's in it but he's in a ton of stuff too like you know he plays J. Edgar Hoover in uh, Oliver Stone's Nixon and he's so damn good in it yeah. I think he's one of those actors, man, who never gave you a bad performance. There's right. never, like, I don't ever remember seeing a movie with Bob Hoskins and being like, oh, man, this, he's miscast or, you know, he was, you know, eh, not for, well, I'm, okay.
0: Here's the thing that's cool. Uh, when you and I were planning this out and two days ago, this wasn't the case, but it's available on, on Max right now. And it's the Criterion streaming copy. We mentioned recently that we've seen that once or twice now with Max. So they are actually, those guys are actually uh, paying for the Criterion version that is most likely the one on the Criterion channel. And it has returned the Criterion channel as of November 1st. So there you go. Oh, there you have it. All right. I think it's a must for anybody that, that only knows Hoskins from his American yeah. movies, you know? Um, and this one as well as a long, good Friday is, is another one that i just not seeing this. You're just doing yourself a disservice as a cinema fan. Yeah. Michael Caine. Yeah, man. <laughs> I'm glad I revisited it. And quite honestly, Okay. I don't have any problems saying this. Whether <laughs> I keep in the episode or not, it's another story. What I say at the beginning, I, I said I didn't like it as much as I did, but the more we started talking about it, I'm like, oh, man, maybe I was just sour for like five minutes about it because when you start watching a movie, and this is why we talked about that, that you don't get those movies anymore where you go get a piece of pie or get a coffee and talk about the movie afterwards.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's exactly what this movie is. This is a right. movie that you're supposed to sit and you're supposed to digest and you're fucking supposed to like run it all back in your head. And you're, right. that's one of the things I miss about film. Like even, you know, when you go into film, I, I feel like those are the moments. And I don't know if it's, you know, just as you get to be a certain age, you don't have that time after you see a movie with your friends or or to sit and talk with people about it. But that's one of the things I miss about you know, about this movie. And that's one of the, you know, I was super excited to talk about it um, because, you know, I've been all, I mean, that's why I hit you up early. I'm like, I'm good to go whenever dude. <laughs> Cause I was like, <laughs> you know, I just really think the um, it's, it's, it's it's a movie that sits there. And, and when you, when you're watching it, you're like, it's weird because I feel like when it was done, it all hit me at once. Right. You know, I'm watching and I'm, all those moments are happening And I'm I'm sort of there with the characters, right? So I'm moving with them. So I can't take the time to be like, oh, that was sad, or this, or that, or the other. But at the end of the movie, man, it's like you exhale and you're like, fuck, man, right? You know, it's just it's it's cool. And that you know, again, that you know, it's it's one of the. it's one of those things that, that that makes the movie going experience great, and you know. And the other thing that's great is you can sit down and you talk and you start talking with somebody about it, and you're like, "Oh fuck!" You know what? I didn't think of that. Or yeah, you're absolutely right. But what about this? You know, that's one of the things this movie really, I think, really accomplishes well. Is be, again, it's like, look, like, man, I didn't know a bunch of hookers. <laughs> I don't, you know, I didn't know, but I don't know a bunch of like low life, uh, you know, right? Ex con chauffeurs, but look. I I like these people in this movie. Yeah, right. I mean, man, yeah, it's so good. Yeah.
0: There you go. So there is our first of our neo noirs and our second for noir November. Again, these are two movies that you can catch online and uh, jump on them. Don't don't wait. Get into the spirit of Noir November and watch them <laughs> in November. Yes, because you're it's going to be holidays and then you're going to be be watching all your all your goofy Christmas stuff. And then you're going to be like, oh man, like you can't get in the right headspace, man. Get in your headspace now. It's no November, damn it.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, everybody's doing it. <laughs> <laughs> At least we are. Yeah. I mean, I, uh,
0: November. November.
1: go down that rabbit hole. You'll discover movies that, you know, like this is a good, I feel like this is a movie. If you haven't seen it, you absolutely should see it and work your way backwards from there.
0: We both mentioned uh, Long Good Friday. That's on Max right now, also too. So, if you wanted to jump right in it after you watch Mona Lisa, it's going to get recommended to you anyway because it does. That's what happened. <laughs> yeah, I unfortunately had to come upstairs to watch the movie because Melody was downstairs doing stuff, so I couldn't pop the disc in. So, so the Criterion uh, stream that I saw um, is the same one that you saw. Well, you, I think you saw it on Max too, right? Uh huh. Yep. Yeah. It looks good. It looks really good. Again. Pratt's cinematography shines on that streaming copy, but if you got, but the Blu-ray is so worth getting if you don't own it already. And I get it, if you don't want to buy it right now because you're waiting for it to be half off again. It's going to be half off soon because guess what always happens in November <laughs> sales. Yeah, so.
1: right. The Black Friday sales <laughs> start like today.
0: Noir Friday.
1: Right. Fuck. Dude, tomorrow the uh, you know you know Kino is my worst enemy when it comes to this. That's the truth. Yeah, I'm going to have to block those fuckers for the next <laughs> two months.
0: All right. So, if you want to follow the show on the socials, it's at Karate Pod on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Insta. You can follow the show at patreon.com slash Karate Pod. You can follow Corey at Coper97 on Instagram and Corey underscore Cope on Letterboxd.
1: If you want to follow Freddie, you can follow me at Rock and Rollin33 on Instagram, or you can follow me at Father George. Letterbox.com. <laughs> That's Father George. Letterbox.com. Martwell Strip Club.